Greetings, salutations, and welcome again to the China Guy podcast. I am your host, Sean Lavellet, the China Guy. In our last outing, episode three, we introduced the great Chinese philosopher Confucius, his life, and his philosophy. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to give it a listen, as we will be covering the second and final half of that story in this podcast. You can find the episode on iTunes as well as on the China Guy SoundCloud. Now let's jump into the rest of our story. When we last spoke, we left off with the death of old Master Confucius after he spent much of his life advancing the causes of his philosophy, albeit unsuccessfully. Confucius started a school and spent the end of his life teaching a new generation of scholars. And upon his death, no rulers in the fractured spring and autumn period had adopted his ideas. Yet all was not lost for our wise protagonist, because the scholars he trained kept his teachings alive. The most prominent of these first-generation Confucians is known as Mencius, or in Chinese, is called Mengzi, or Master Meng. Mencius was born in 372 BC and lived until 289 BC, and founded the idealistic school of Confucianism. In his view, humans are thought to be basically good. And the positive aspects of Confucianism, like charity and kindness, are viewed to be instinctive. However, this was not a popular opinion in some Confucian circles. And a few decades after the death of Confucius, a new scholar named Chunzi was born and rose in the intellectual hierarchy of Confucianism. Chunzi was born in 298 BC, dying in 238 BC. He formed the realistic school of Confucian philosophy, and his ideas were the antithesis of Mencius. He claimed that man was inherently evil, but could achieve goodness through Confucian principles of Li and other forms of guidance. Out of the two different streams of thought, Chunzi eventually won out. Yet it would take a long time for Confucianism to gain a foothold in ancient China. To abridge a very interesting portion of Chinese history. The spring and autumn period in which Confucius and Mencius lived would eventually give way to the aptly named Warring States period, during which a dozen different kingdoms and states, well, warred against each other. The Warring States period ended when Qin Shi Huang, ruler of the Qin Dynasty, conquered the whole of China and inaugurated the Qin Dynasty in 221 BC. Qin Shi Huang's unification of China took decades, and at the same time, the Punic Wars raged in the Mediterranean between Rome and Carthage, during which Hannibal famously crossed the Alps with a pack of elephants. Now, I know we are speeding through the political history of ancient China pretty quickly, but all we need to know for our story is that China was fractured during Confucius' life, and Qin Shi Huang unified China under his Qin Dynasty. Don't worry, we will cover the Warring States period and Qin Shi Huang in a later episode. They definitely deserve a more comprehensive discussion than we can provide here. So Qin Shi Huang has unified China after centuries of division. Yet how does he keep the peace? In order to govern such an enormous empire, Qin Shi Huang turned to one of the great philosophies of the Hundred Schools of Thought. Yet it was not Confucianism. Instead. The Qin Emperor adopted legalism into his political system, instituting harsh punishments and enforcing his rule through force and intimidation. He also tried to stamp out all other schools of thought by burning philosophic and religious texts, destroying whole libraries of knowledge in the process. By eliminating other competing philosophies, Qin Shi Huang sought to position legalism as the dominant philosophic system in Chinese society. 
Yet his campaign was futile, and after his death in 210 BC, the Qin dynasty rapidly declined. To condense another epic period of Chinese history, the Qin dynasty was overthrown by Liu Bang, a peasant who rose to prominence as a leader in the anti-Qing rebel forces. Liu Bang founded the Great Han Dynasty only four years after the death of Qin Shi Huang. He famously remarked that he conquered China on horseback, but that he would have to dismount to rule. While his military prowess ensured Liu Bang's status in history books, he needed a lot of help from bureaucrats to organize and govern just as effectively. Yet Liu Bang saw the excessive oppression of the Qin and did not want a continuation of those policies. Do not mistake this for benevolence, however. The Han dynasty that Liu Bang founded was an authoritarian empire, and power was held in the hands of the emperor and his family. Liu Bang simply did not believe the harsh legalism of the Qin dynasty was the best method of government, and he moved away from legalism, attempting to rule with a gentler hand. Yet again, Confucianism was passed up. Liu Bang favored Taoism as the state philosophy, and Taoist scholars and clerics were brought into court by the first Han emperor. Confucianism would not rise to prominence until almost a century into the Han dynasty, during the reign of one of the most illustrious emperors of ancient China, Emperor Han Wu Di. Reigning from 141 BC to 87 BC, Han Wu Di was one of the longest reigning and most influential emperors in Chinese history and lived a fascinating life. He was also responsible for planting Confucian thought at the heart of Chinese imperial government, not only keeping Confucian ideology alive, but giving it a place of prominence that it would hold for the rest of Chinese history. Han Wu Di faced many obstacles in his mission to introduce Confucianism at the Han court. His grandmother, the Empress Dowager, was very powerful and was herself a strong proponent of Taoism and sought to fill the court with Taoist clerics. Yet one by one, Han Wu Di would insert a Confucian scholar into his inner circle until his court was filled with Confucian sympathizers and intellectuals. Once Han Wu Di made this pivot in his court, Confucianism began to be discussed around the nation, increasing its presence in daily life and governance. A number of factors led Han Wu Di in making this transition. The emperor adopted the realistic school of Confucianism, founded by Chunzi. The emphasis on rule of law and strict hierarchy was attractive to an authoritarian government like the Han Dynasty. It was also a powerful stabilizing factor for the dynasty, unifying China under a single system of governance. Other factors also appealed to Han Wudi and his court, primarily the question of loyalty. Under Confucianism, loyalty took many forms, including loyalty to one's parents, family, and ruler. This loyalty was created through the complex network of relationships at the center of Confucian life, as well as through education about Confucian philosophy and ideals. This is far from legalism, which imposed loyalty through aggression and strict adherence to law. There was also the issue of China's old elite ruling class of lords, who were left over from the semi-feudal Zhou dynasty. Under legalism, these men held no political voice and were simply another brick in the wall that was the Qin dynasty. So when Han Wu Di began the switch to Confucianism, these elites had a place in society again. Confucian political thought celebrates the bureaucrat as integral to society, providing a place for the old landed elite. Now, instead of feudal-style lords, they were reinvented as privileged bureaucrats, and the Confucian fondness for art 
gave these elites a cultural outlet as well. Instead of making wars, they made poetry. The favor of Han Wudi reached its apex in 124 BC when an official of Imperial Confucian Academy was established, where students would come from across China to study Confucianism with its famed scholar teachers, known in Chinese as Ba Shi. At this academy, students studied the great arts of Confucian thought, including poetry, philosophy, literature, rituals, and divination. Upon graduation from this institute, students took exams for placement into imperial administrative posts, which over the centuries became the de facto method for recruitment into these positions. This replaced the old system, where potential bureaucrats would be recommended to positions by their connections. In the new system of imperial examination, merit was supposed to serve as the basis for entry into the imperial bureaucracy. This does not mean that instances of favoritism did not occur, yet it established a meritocratic system of measurement for the entire imperial administration. Confucianism, in the end, had a profound effect on Chinese history, as it provided many stabilizing factors to Chinese life. Elite lords were finally given an outlet for their political voice. The country was unified under one dynasty, and a system for training and selecting the best bureaucrats and administrators finally existed. While China still had its problems, the widespread violence of the previous centuries was over. So it appears Old Master Confucius got what he wanted in the end. China unified under his teachings. The history of Confucianism extends further into the medieval Tang and Song dynasties, where it would take new forms and change into something called Neo-Confucianism. But that, dear listeners, is a story for another day. Thank you for listening. Zaijian.